Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, For those who don't know me, my name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And I want to welcome you because um, for those of you who it's either your very first time or you missed last week, we are in week two of a three-week series called Benefit of the Doubt. And really the, the premise for this series is that we often associate the word doubt with things that are bad, things that are negative, especially when it comes to spiritual things and matters of faith. And maybe some of you have even had bad experiences when you've expressed some doubt and someone has said something to you that you really didn't appreciate. And, um, and so one of the things we're taking a look at in, with this series is that doubt um, isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, sometimes it can be a really good thing. Uh, so when it comes to our faith, for example, um, there are times when those doubts creep in, those questions that we can't really answer, those struggles that we have in our faith. And um, if we don't just try and dismiss them or flippantly explain them away, and if we don't just kind of bury them and pretend that they're not there, but instead, if we would turn and face head on our doubts and our questions and our struggles, what that actually leads to is a very good thing. It can be a scary thing, but what it ends up leading to, and it certainly has in my life, and I struggle with questions and doubts a lot, but what it leads us to is it intensifies our faith and our relationship with God, because what happens is, if we we address those questions and those struggles and those doubts head on, then what we find is that our prayer life all of a sudden is way more intense than it was before. Instead of just kind of casually praying about things, now we're coming to God with big questions, big struggles, big doubts. Now, instead of just showing up to church and just kind of like, oh, whatever, you know, listen to the sermon, but now you're coming in with stuff on your mind, you're more fully engaged. When you, when you read your Bible, you are looking for answers, you are wrestling with God, and that actually it leads to a vibrancy in your relationship with God. Although it's a difficult thing, uh, it can really be very beneficial when we push into and, we, and we're not afraid of those doubts. So what we've been doing in, in this series is um, each week we're looking at um, some, some Christians, some people who are uh, written about in the accounts in the New Testament. And um, these are different people each week we're taking a look at who really struggled big time with doubt. And then each time we're looking at how Jesus responds to those folks who are doubting. And again, just, just like I said last week, we're not talking about like people who were, you know, very skeptical and didn't believe. I mean, these are people who are all believed in Jesus. Okay. These are all followers of Jesus who had major doubts. So if you're here and you have major doubts, just know that there's some shared camaraderie and support in that. You are not alone. You're in some very, very good company. So last week, we took a look at a guy named John the Baptist. And, um, the big deal with John the Baptist was he is famous for being the prophet who was paving the way for, for Jesus. He was the one going, hey, we've been looking for a Messiah. We've been searching the prophecies. Here he is. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And so you have this kind of this amazing deal. That's what he's famous for. That's what he's known for. He was going all around declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he gets thrown into prison. And all of a sudden, all that stuff that happened before, it's like poof. It's gone. And many of us can relate 
to John the Baptist, when things get difficult and we're in our prison cell experiences, all of a sudden, all these doubts flood in. And it got so bad, and this is kind of amazing that it's in the Bible. You should actually like read your Bible sometime. It'll blow your mind, some of the stuff that's in there. I mean, really, um, it, it, what, we, what we read last week was that here is John the Baptist. I can't believe that, that this was written down in the scriptures, that he is so at a place of doubt that he actually sends his disciples out to Jesus because he's heard about all these amazing things that Jesus has been doing. And he says to, to ask, to go ask Jesus this question. Okay, he says to his, his followers, are you really the one or should we be expecting somebody else? <laughs> That's crazy, man. It's totally crazy. And Jesus, I love Jesus' response. We talked about this last week, but just, you know, it's been a long week. So just getting everybody up to speed, all right? Jesus basically says, listen, go back and tell John, you need to hit rewind and press play, okay? You need to come back to what you've already heard because he was, had already been hearing these things, okay? You need to go back to what you've already seen and what you already know. And we talked about last week that when we're faced with those big doubts and those struggles in our lives, that one of the most powerful things that we can do is we can hit rewind and press play on the God moments of our lives, those times we just can't explain away kind of in this human natural realm. There's too many coincidences for it to be a coincidence. And we come back to those moments, those answered prayers, those times when it was like God's voice was almost audible. And, and we, we hit play on those moments to come back and bolster us in our times of our greatest doubt. That's where we were last week. But here's the question for, for leading us into this week. What if hitting rewind and pressing play on those God moments in our lives is still not enough? What if, you know, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going over that stuff in my mind. That was a powerful time. And I really felt God's presence there. And God, that, that seemed like it was a real answer to prayer. But you're still doubting. You're still struggling. You're still wrestling. And um, you're just a little bit in turmoil. Like, what do you do? What do you do then? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So this week, um, we are turning our focus to one of Jesus' 12 disciples. This was someone who's a pretty famous doubter. And um, we actually read about him, at least this part of his life, in one of the Gospels. There's four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four different folks who wrote about what they had seen and heard uh, in Jesus' lifetime. And so, um, so here we have this writer, John. John's actually one of the 12 disciples. And it's, it's a 21-chapter um, account. It's a record that, uh, that John put together. And uh, the second to last chapter, John chapter 20, is where we find this account of this disciple with major, major doubts. Now, just want to give you a little background before we jump into the verses we're going to look at in John's account in chapter 20. So what's happening here, just so you know, is that Jesus has gone through his whole ministry. He's done all this amazing stuff. He's made these bold claims. And he's been crucified for essentially claiming to be the Son of God, to, to be be God in human flesh, which was just total blasphemy. It was a threat to the Jewish, um, uh, it was like to the Jewish authority. It was also a threat to Roman rule. And so um, Jesus has been crucified on what we uh, traditionally now in the church call Good Friday. 
And then on the Sunday, which we now refer to as Easter Sunday, um, he, he, you know, this, this is kind of where we're going we're gonna to pick up at least the beginning part of, of the story. But Jesus, his body is laid in a tomb, and, uh, and there's a stone rolled in front of it, and it's being guarded by soldiers. And so um, then we see that uh, Mary Magdalene is there, and she goes to, to the body on that Sunday morning. And um, there was a, a preparation that she would do to anoint the body and prepare it for burial. And so she's, she's down there. When she gets down there, there's no body. Uh, the tomb's empty. And she's weeping. She's weeping. She's crying. And there's this gardener. She thinks it's a gardener who starts asking her questions like, you know, what's, are you okay? And, and it turns out it's not a gardener. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the risen Jesus. And so like, it clicks together for her, and she can't believe it. And then he says, go and, and, tell, go and tell the disciples what we've talked about, that I've, I've risen. So then a week later, a week later, Jesus actually appears to the disciples. They're huddled in a room, and he appears to the disciples. Now, what's interesting is, and many of you know, that there, not all the disciples were there in that room. There was one very famous disciple who wasn't there. And that's where we're going to pick it up. John's Gospel account, chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. It says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, now in Aramaic, Didymus means twin. So we're picking up that, okay, Thomas had a, a twin. And um, so this was like his nickname. They called him twin. What's up, twin? Um, so... It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, this is pretty amazing, okay? Just step back and think about this for a minute, okay? Jesus has died, and now, like, utter chaos has ensued, right? Because now it's like, okay, we're next. That's, that's, what, that's what you're thinking if you're one of his closest uh, circle of, of people, okay? We're next. So here are these disciples, and they're so jubilant, okay? And they're telling him, oh my goodness, you, you could just imagine the joy and the, and the excitement and the relief and just everything feels different, right? And here is Thomas. These are his closest friends. He has spent the last three years with them 24-7. And they're all telling him the same thing. And here he goes, and he's like, yeah, unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I actually touch Jesus, I'm not believing. And this is where we get this famous nickname for Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. In fact, maybe if you're new to church or whatever, you've heard that expression, don't be such a doubting Thomas. This is actually where it originates, is right here. We've got Thomas, and he is just such a doubter. Now, he he does come by this uh, honestly, I think. Because if you look at the scriptures, he appears a few times in the gospel accounts in Jesus' ministry. And each time that uh, Thomas appears and, and, and says something, it's negative. Okay? So he's just one of those people. You know, you know some of those people? I know none of you are those people, but other people are those kind of people. Just a little bit negative, a little bit pessimistic, you know, 
or realists, right? Okay, I'm trying to make you feel good if you're one of those people. Uh, you're just very, very realistic about things. Uh, I'll just give you one example. It's um, about 10 chapters earlier in, in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 16. And let me just, let me set this up for you real quick. Here's what's happening. So Jesus has had some threats on his life in Jerusalem. Like it's getting so amped up and he's making these claims and he's like threatening all the establishment that like they're trying to kill him. And you read in these Gospels, it's like kind of amazing because they try and grab hands on him and all of a sudden he does like what only Jesus can do and he just like, whoosh, he just miraculously slips away. And so now they're out in the countryside a little bit. They're out away from Jerusalem, which was the hotbed, the epicenter of everything. And so he's doing ministry and healing people and, you know, and, and doing all he's doing, but he's away from Jerusalem. Well, then he finds out that his friend Lazarus has died. And when he finds out Lazarus has died, um, Jesus makes plans to go and, and visit Lazarus. And many of you know what, what happens. This is one of Jesus' most famous miracles of all. He ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. And so he's basically telling his disciples what's going on, and Lazarus lives near Jerusalem. Problem, okay? This is a problem. And look at, so, so basically it's, it's pretty clear, okay, this is what Jesus is going to do. Come on, guys. And then this is what, this is what uh, Thomas says. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It's kind of one of those really inspiring pep talks. You know, like you just want to get behind that guy. You know what I'm saying? Wow, that's awesome. Can we, I'm going right now. That's amazing. Cool. Let's go die with Jesus. So this is Thomas, okay? He's actually really loyal. You see loyalty when you look at Thomas, but you also see a distinct pessimism about Thomas that um, certainly is being expressed here when he's like, unless I see it, okay, all you guys look all excited, but forget it, man. I'm not going to, I'm not going to believe. Now, um, so it's, it's, I believe it's, it's fair. The, the kind of the reputation that Thomas gets, I think it's, it's, it's fair. But I think it's also interesting to take a look at the other disciples because Thomas really becomes the focal point and, and he gets, in my opinion, like almost all of the blame for the, for the doubt. But let's, let's back up a few verses earlier in John chapter 20, starting in verse 18. Check this out, you guys. It says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, read very carefully. Pay attention very carefully now. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, okay, pay attention right here, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Did anyone notice anything interesting? The other disciples had also heard an account from someone they knew well who claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. Now, their posture in that room, does that make you think that they are fully confident, that they have no doubt that this Savior is actually alive and is going to be able to help them in this next phase of their life? Is there anything to give you confidence to think that they are absolutely unwavering in their convictions? No, 
Not at all. It's fascinating to me. They are huddled together in fear. They're freaking out. And even though she says this, it, it obviously hasn't helped. And what I, what I think is amazing, it's not just Thomas for me, but it's actually all of them, all the disciples. Think about this. Think of all the miracles that they'd seen. Think of all the people they had seen Jesus heal. Think of the demons that had been cast out of people. Think about, um, if you've read in the, in the Gospels, in the Scriptures, how it says that Jesus, when he was teaching, he, people were just in awe because he taught with such incredible authority. It wasn't just how profound the things he said were, but there was a sense of authority, like this was something beyond human. Okay? They had experienced this over and over and over again. They'd seen this man walk on water. They had seen, in the midst of a tremendous storm, they had seen that whole thing just go calm and flat just when he spoke some words to the storm. They'd seen all this stuff for years, firsthand eyewitnesses. And yet, it wasn't enough, was it? Because now Jesus is dead. And everything gets called into question. Everything. If he's really the Savior, if he's really the Son of God, how in the world could he be dead? Just didn't make sense. And doubt crept in. And you just need to know when doubt creeps in, in your mind, in your life, through your faith journey, and it will, it's okay. You're in excellent company. So the deal was that all the disciples, except for Thomas, had had that firsthand reassurance. A beautiful thing. But Thomas hadn't. And this is where Thomas is. And he says, unless I see, unless I touch, I just can't believe. So, here we go. Let's see Jesus' response. Verse 26 and 27 in John chapter 20. It says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. So now Thomas is there in the room. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. I love thinking about what that must have been like in that moment, how Jesus did that. Okay, we don't have time for that, but that's just something interesting there. So Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, Thomas and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what I love about Jesus' response, he doesn't get into that room and say, Thomas, how dare you? I can't believe. All these friends of yours, don't you even trust them? He says, Thomas, you know, you got what's, I'm going to give you what you need, okay? You need a little evidence? You need some proof? Come on. And he meets Thomas right where he is. Doesn't condemn him. But he says, here, here you go. Here's the evidence. And you know what's really cool about that? Some of you are like, well, that's great for Thomas, but see, I'm still left with my doubt. I can't, I can't touch Jesus. I can't like see the nail marks and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know, Jesus actually 
hasn't just given Thomas proof, hasn't just given Thomas evidence, but he's actually given us evidence too. He really has. There's evidence for what we believe and to refute the times when we doubt. There is evidence. There's stuff that we can come back to that gives us some proof. Okay, it's not going to get us all the way there and make 100% case closed type of deal. There's always faith involved in belief, but Jesus actually gives us evidence. Now, some of you guys are going, okay, here we go. I know where the pastor's going now. Okay, his evidence, yes. So he's going to hold up this Bible right here. And he's going to open it up and say, look at all the stuff that you can read in here. And I could do that. Okay? He's going, to, he's going to look at the Old Testament and all these prophecies and all these things and these claims that were made about this Messiah, but how do we really know? And then you're going to go through in the New Testament and you're going to you know, read through these prophecies that were fulfilled and you're going to make this case that we can believe with absolute certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. And then you're going to come along and you're going to talk about like how we can really you know, believe from history because of all these reasons that this book is credible. But here's the thing, Derek. You may be thinking, here's the thing. What if I have major doubts about this? You know, this was written by human beings, and, you know, how do we know that they got it right? And, you know, this is this great ancient book, and, you know, maybe it's a little inspired, but aren't there a bunch of inspired things? And how how do we know? How do we know? So what I want to talk about this morning is the evidence that has nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible. Nothing. Okay? In fact, what I just want us to look at is what we know from history, because that's really where the evidence is, is in history outside the Bible. Now, for this little exercise, what I want you to do in your mind is I want you to pretend that this Bible was never written. Okay? And all the different accounts that were written by the, the, the different disciples and then the letters that Paul wrote and the history of the early church, I want you to pretend that every single document that was ever written by a follower of Jesus, anyone who called themselves a Christian, never existed. Never. Okay? So all we are going to look at, okay? if you're not feeling skeptical here in this room, just put your skeptical hat on for a minute and join me, okay? because this is going to be fun. I want you just to pretend there's no Bible. There's no Christian citation sources of any kind. What do we know? What evidence do we have that this might actually be true? No Bible, no Christian sources, no early church, no church fathers, none of it, okay? Well, what do we have? We've got a lot, actually. There's a lot going on in history uh, during that era, I want us to look at a few different um, sources. I want us to look at a few different historical records, all right? And the first one that we're going to look at in just a second, it comes from a Roman historian. And the reason that we have this in large part is because uh, this historian was writing about the great fire of Rome that happened in 64 AD. And for those of you who kind of are familiar, Nero was the emperor. And Nero was a very interesting, very controversial person. And uh, he was a little bit crazy from what I can tell. Okay. And so there were actually these rumors 
rumors that after the great fire of Rome, that it was actually Nero who set the fire because he had these plans for this massive palace. And he was basically clearing space for the palace. And so this is what the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus writes in his history called the Annals 15 and 44. He says, hence, to suppress the rumor, he, meaning Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most exquisite tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, and that was a, there was a common reference that you see in antiquity to this person, Jesus Christ, referred to as Christus with a U.S. or even Christus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. So, um, but it says, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death, might ring a bell, by Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea, in the reign of Tiberius. Now, I just want to reiterate for you, this is not a Christian who is writing this account. This is someone who is writing an account about what happened during the great fire of Rome. Look at what another Roman historian, Suetonius, chimes in on this event as well. He says, he, again meaning Nero, he likewise inflicted punishment on the Christians, a sort of people who held a new and impious superstition. Of course, we know what that new and impious superstition was, right? They believed that a man had risen from the dead and they worshipped him as God at a time when, let's just say, it was not politically correct to worship anyone other than Caesar. So, let's look at um, someone from a different uh, background. So this is the Greek writer, Lucian of Samosata. And this guy wrote with tremendous satire. For those of you who like satire and you like kind of dark stuff, uh, you would have loved Lucian of Samosata. This is uh, an excerpt from his work, The Death of Peregrine, uh, number 11 through 13. He says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time. So what we see here again is we see somebody writing and they're not a Christian. They're not a follower of Jesus. They're actually, he's writing with tremendous scorn and derision, these misguided people. But what he's documenting is this is actually something that was real. This is something that happened in history. Nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with church, nothing to do with anyone who was pro-Christianity whatsoever. Let's look at somebody else. This is a very famous historian who's Jewish, the Jewish historian Josephus. Again, not a Christian. Look at what he writes. Seems that he's a little bit more um, objective or a little bit more favorably inclined than the ones that we read before. But this is from his Antiquities of the Jews. He wrote a ton, ton of historical accounts through his lifetime. And Josephus writes, Now there was about this time Jesus, 
a wise man. He was a doer of wonderful works. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. When Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. I could go on and on and on. There are actually many different records, historical records, accounts from Jewish, from Greek, from Roman, from secular historians, historical records that are not disputed. And what's fascinating about this, again, can I say this one more time? This has nothing to do with the Bible. This has nothing to do with any pro-Jesus record. It basically, if it's any, anything pro-Jesus, like anyone who is a Christian or making claims that Jesus was God, we just throw all that stuff out. We're only really looking at people who didn't believe this stuff. Here's what we know when we compile all that stuff. Check this out. This is what we know. Without the Bible at all. Bible doesn't exist. Just from history. Roman, Jewish, Greek, secular accounts. This is what we know. There was a man who lived 2,000 years ago. His name was Jesus. He was from Nazareth. He was known to be a very virtuous man. He was known to be an incredibly wise teacher. In fact, some of the things that he said were carried on and carried on and carried on. These profound things that are attributed to Jesus to this day. He also, uh, there was all this swirling around him like that had to do with these wonders that somehow he did or he performed or were associated with him. In fact, some say he was like a sorcerer of some sort. We know clearly that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We know, without a doubt, that his followers, those closest to him, started making these claims that he wasn't in fact dead, though he'd been killed, but that he'd risen from the dead, and they were worshiping him as God. They were worshiping a dead man, as God. And the last thing we know is that this little following, this movement, when Jesus died, it didn't die. In fact, it exploded. And the numbers grew and grew and grew. And in fact, what we know from history is that within just a few centuries, it went from being the most offensive thing that you would be, you know, fed to the lions or, you know, impaled on a stick and set on fire or crucified under Roman law. You went, that would be your fate. In just a few centuries, Christianity became the official religion of Rome. That's what we know from history. We also know what happened to those doubting disciples. Yes, we do. And I just got to tell you, if you haven't heard this before, 
it didn't end well for them. Didn't, didn't go so well. Let me tell you, I'm just going to give you six of them and kind of their reward for their claims um, and they're worshiping this dead man who they claim rose from the dead. So we'll just look at six, okay? The first one is the tax collector named Matthew. Um, Matthew, diff- different accounts tell us different things on Matthew, but he was either killed by a sword or he was killed by a spear, okay? Depending on which historical records you look at. Killed for claiming that Jesus was God and refusing to stop saying that, refusing uh, to bow down to Caesar, but uh, claiming that Jesus was Lord. All these, this was the reason they were, they were killed. Um, one of the other disciples, Andrew, crucified. Philip, crucified. Peter did not consider himself worthy to die the same death as God. So he said, could I please be crucified upside down? James, the brother of Jesus, who incidentally did not believe that Jesus was God until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Think about your brother for a second, if you have one, okay? Or a sibling or someone you're close to. What would they have to do to prove to you that they were God? Okay? Probably wasn't some great teachings or a virtuous life or even a miracle or two. Because someone has a brother named David Copperfield or one of those guys, right? So um, ultimately, it was the resurrection that convinced his own brother, James, that he was the son of God. And so he was actually stoned to death for his belief. Josephus uh, captured that one. And then finally, how about the last one? Our guy, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. You know what happened after he saw the resurrected Christ, after he actually got to put his hands where the nails went in and he got to feel where that, where that spear went into Jesus' side. You know what happened to him? He went from doubting Thomas. He was so fired up, so convicted as, I mean, you can imagine, right? He got that incredible physical firsthand evidence that This carried him all the way to India. He preached the gospel all the way to India and would not stop talking about it upon numerous threats of death until finally he was killed for his claims about Jesus by a spear. It didn't end well for these guys. So the question is, that hits me, in the midst of all my doubt about God and faith and the Bible and Jesus and Christianity and everything, when it all gets pulled into question and I'm, I'm struggling. If these, these guys, it wasn't like someone kind of like told them secondhand and someone really good just kind of convinced them of this lie. But actually, the deal was, they claimed to have seen Jesus firsthand. Okay, now just stay with me because you got to get this point. Okay, just stay with me. Why would you die for a lie if you knew it was a lie, right? I mean, if you didn't know it was a lie, like someone conned you or, you know, really convinced you, like we've seen that in history, David Koresh and other, you know, uh, cults and things, they convince people and then they die. They die for a lie, but they didn't know it was a lie, right? They fully believed that it was true. And so they would die for that lie. 
But why would you die for a lie if you knew that it was a lie? Meaning, if Jesus hadn't really reappeared, okay? And they were sitting in that room and they said, you know what? I got it. We look like a bunch of fools. What the heck are we doing? Here's the thing. Let's go say he rose from the dead. We'll take the body. We'll bury it somewhere. And we'll go around telling everyone, we'll be heroes. We'll be, we'll, you know, and we'll turn all, you know, we'll get everybody on board with this. You know, and just a few hundred years from now, you know, I mean, everyone will believe in Jesus. And Rome will embrace the whole religion. Let's go out and start doing that. Now, does that really sound logical? Okay, does that sound good? And does it sound logical then when these disciples, maybe they went out with that plan. Okay, cool. We'll make up this lie. Okay, pinky swear, you know, prick your finger in blood. Let's nobody, you know, don't anyone say anything. This is, this is how it happened. Okay, let's get our story straight. Okay, cool. Let's go. Break. Okay, go. Well, then you're standing in front of the same exact people who had Jesus on trial and you get arrested after a while and you're standing in front of those same people that had Jesus executed and they're going, so what did you say? One more time. We heard these rumors. Um, are you saying that you've seen Jesus rose, rise from the dead? Because if you are, we're just going to kill you. At that point, the lie is no longer cool. I'm just saying. Like, it was good. It was fun. Like, I had, you know, it was great. But I'm, you know, I'm not doing it then. Because I know it's just a lie. I made it up. I made it up so I'd look better. Save face. It doesn't make sense to me. But they went to their deaths saying, we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and we've heard. Now, here's the other thing that is really interesting to me. We are almost done. Just a couple minutes to go. And I want to come back actually to this, okay? So, and, and if you're really skeptical about the Bible, let me just, just bear with me for one second because I think this is also really interesting. So if you're one of those people and you're like, you know what? I do. I don't get it exactly, but I, I feel like they, they made it up. And then these accounts, you know, they, that got written in and uh, these disciples, they just, you know, this was kind of their deal. This was their legacy. This was how they wanted to rewrite the, the history books. And so we have this thing, but it just, it just, it's just, they concocted it. Here's the interesting thing about that. If if these guys that then wrote these things that got preserved in the New Testament, right? Like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If they're writing this stuff, and the goal is like to kind of save face because they, you know, they look like a bunch of idiots. The guy they were following and said that he was, he was Jesus, he's dead. Boom. Like, what are you going to do now with the rest of your life? Okay? So what I think is, is so fascinating is you would then think that when they're writing these accounts, not only are they saying that Jesus rose, but if I'm Matthew, if I'm John, I'm going to make myself look at least decent, right? Like, I mean, Jesus, he's God, but like, I don't have to look like a complete moron at every page of reading the Gospels. Check this out. If you haven't read the Gospels, you should, you should read them just kind of through this lens, okay? How did the disciples look in the Gospels? Because, you know, they're the ones that wrote this stuff. They're the ones that wrote, this is their reputation. You know how they look? Completely, completely clueless. The whole time that Jesus is teaching them, they have no idea. He's teaching them a parable. The parable's over. Christ's like, oh, 
They go over, you know, they're having a little, you know, break over here with Jesus. And they're like, okay, Jesus, that was really cool. What the heck did that mean? Like every time, they have no clue what's happening. They don't understand, okay? Jesus is going around and he's saying, at a certain point in his ministry, he starts saying, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. This is how this plan is going to go down. And time and time again, they're saying, no, Jesus. They're rebuking Jesus. They are like, Jesus, you don't get it. I mean, they don't get it. They have no earthly idea what is happening. Several of the disciples are jockeying for who's going to be the greatest of all of Jesus' disciples. That doesn't exactly look that good either. And then the doubts, which we're looking at throughout this series, the doubts are absolutely crazy. Here they are. We just looked at this a few verses ago. They're huddled in a room, scared to death freaking out. Is that something you'd want to write in? Would you really want to write in like we talked about last week, that that the, the one who was the prophet who was ushering Jesus in then goes to jail and starts asking, are you even the one anymore? Like he basically undermined his entire ministry. Zero credibility. Done. Would you really want to write in that um, women were the eyewitnesses at the tomb to see the angels and to see Jesus? Women 2,000 years ago, I love all you ladies out here, okay? But 2,000 years ago, women's testimony meant nothing, no rights, nothing. It's a guy's world, okay? 2,000 years ago. Why the heck would you say that? Put some guys into the story. It doesn't make any sense. There's no credibility there. Why in the world would they write it this way? Unless this was the way it happened. Why would you include these things? Unless, as crazy as this may sound to some of you, it actually happened. And he actually rose, proving that he truly was God. Now, before we close in prayer, I just want to let you know where we're heading next week. Because if you thought that today was interesting, when we looked at Thomas's doubt, you have got to come back next week because next week we are going to look at, to me, what is the most disturbing doubt in all of the New Testament of the Bible. And many of you probably have never noticed this. It's very easy to miss. I'm not going to tell you where it is or what it is, but it's very easy to miss. But to me, it is insane. It is so preposterous, this doubt that we're going to talk about Next week, it makes Thomas's doubt look like nothing, nothing, child's play. It is, it will disturb you. It will, okay? And then what Jesus says in response to this most disturbing doubt is absolutely mind-blowing. So you can't miss next week. You just can't miss next week. What I want to do, um, just in conclusion here, is um, I want to give us just a chance to, to stop for a second and to think, reflect, meditate, pray, whatever it is that you do, okay? So wanna, I want to actually dim the lights, if we could. And um, I just want to give you a minute or two just in silence to reflect. And then I'm going to close us out and pray for all of us.
God, I want to thank you that doubt is a very real thing, not just in our lives, but that we actually see it so well documented among those who followed you. We thank you that um, this is a safe place where we can talk about our doubts. That God, ultimately, you don't respond with condemnation, but you respond by giving us things that we need, stuff that we can come back to, evidence for you. Help all of us, no matter where we are right now in our faith, whether we are just so sky high and confident and doubt hasn't been in our minds forever or whether we are in a valley of doubt in a season right now that's so hard. Uh, God, um, reassure us of what we, what we can believe, what we can be confident in. For those who still have lingering doubts and questions and things, God, help all of us just to push back into you with those things, to trust that you are gonna give us what we need to get through and come out the other side even stronger than before. We thank you, God. Even if it's hard to even believe we're praying to you right now, we thank you for what you give us. Help us to keep pushing forward and keep the faith in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.